Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Sorry for the long hiatus. Had the flagship computer of this program completely and totally burst into flames and die needing replaced. And so I went paragliding. So if you want to support this show, we need a new computer. And if you could donate at paypal.me slash area in the air, that'd be really helpful. We really appreciate that keeping this show going. So today, holy shit, so excited for to to introduce this person to the podcast. His name is Jim Rutt. He is the John Madden of Game B. He is a chairperson of the Santa Fe Institute and has lived a long and varied life. He's incredibly smart and very insightful, and he's one of the, um, how would I say, he's like an OG of this space. He's an OG of thinking about human evolution and how we get from where we are to where we want to go. And so for that, he's incredibly valuable in these kinds of conversations, and I'm super stoked to have met and befriended him. We had such a good time on this talk. We talk about the road to game B, what it could look like, how we do it, and so much more. So I know you guys are going to love this episode. And without further ado, here's my talk with my friend Jim Rutt. good all things considered how about you <laughs> oh man to be totally honest i just had my whole computer just go black just as i was logging into this zoom call with you so i've got my wonderful girlfriend here who's just set me up on her on her uh in her office downstairs of our house but i'm a little on edge to be honest after having you know i was just sending you an email with the credentials um but yeah, here we are. I'm really excited to be here with you. Yeah, it's good. It looks like you have an interesting background. Interested, <laughs> interested to, si- to see where we decide to go with it. Yeah, you know, this is really cool. I think, um, you know, to begin, I would just, you know, to to check in with myself. Yeah, the the um, caffeine mixed with the computer crashing right there put me a little bit on edge because I, I'm so excited to be here with you. You're like the, you're like the John Madden of the philosophical podcast right now. You have this, your ideas are so great, but your voice, just the tone of your voice. I just love it. You're like the John Madden seems like such a perfect, uh, an analogy. And so I would love to hear, you know, I, Today, I listened to the um, Future Thinkers podcast with Jim Rutt, which was really nice because, you know, on your show, so often you're kind of playing other people's games and and hearing their ideas and kind of sussing them out. And it was kind of nice just to hear your own background and that kind of stuff. And 
And there was something that you said in there that really resonated with me that was, you figured you'd be a great podcaster. Uh, fucking good is what you, would say, <laughs> what you said. And, and I, I am similarly endowed with the gift of gab and, and can talk about a number of different things that I'm very passionate about until I'm blue in the face. But as I have, since COVID, I, there was something that switched in me that empowered me to do this podcast that was, that changed the nature of the podcast. And it was something that Jordan Hall wrote. He wrote uh, one of the, the things, the six steps that we need to be doing right now to, to move forward towards game B and away from game A. And that was increasing our discernment, our integrity, our autonomy or our sovereignty, and then turning up the volume on the people who you can best identify are doing that. And so it was like a switch that flipped for me that, that, you know, as a professional athlete for the last decade, I basically, the, the, the game is how do you turn up the volume on your own channel? And the switch that flipped is like, how do I, how do I turn up the volume on Jim Rutt's channel through my channel? You know, how do I turn up, you know, and we've, we've interviewed a lot of the same people, you know, Richard Bartlett and, and Peter Lindbergh and, and these guys, the, the, the switch that flipped for me is like, how do I turn up Jim Rutt's volume through my channel? And it feels like a, a different, it feels like something different inside of me. And so I would love to hear from you. You know, you have a very vast background. I would love to hear from you. What it is like, what do you feel that the podcasting is doing? Thank you. That's a damn good question. You know, um, and actually my podcast has, has different attributes, but I suppose the biggest par biggest purpose that it's serving now, and like you, I think since COVID-19, uh, what originally started out as a bit of a lark just to see if I could do it, uh, has turned into something maybe a bit more serious with more you know serious intent. Uh, and so I think at the highest level, uh, everything I'm doing is an attempt to upregulate the quality of human sense making mm -hmm. in a group of people who have ears to hear. Uh, you know, truthfully, am I interested in being a uh, uh, YouTube celebrity with 19 mil million followers because I have a red plastic ball on my nose and you know, and and juggle plates or something? Hell no. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I what, what I want to do is to be able to. Uh, you know, essentially build, help build a connected knowledge graph mm -hmm. and resource graph for some community, which is growing exponentially, of people who have ears to hear that the status quo is really a bum deal for homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And it's time we build something fresh and new, God damn it. And by the way, here are some people and some ideas and some thinking uh, that'll be help us uh, to collectively play this new game. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that's a very succinct iteration of what of what's going on right now that the status quo is a bum deal for homo sapiens. And you know, it's so funny that you say that and it's so like to me that's so obvious, but it seems like convincing people of that that hey, the system that you are so vehemently defending is actually out to get you. It's actually self-terminating. It is 
it is guaranteed to lead to your own demise is a really like it's ironically difficult to get people to consider it. Yeah, so I'll give you I'll make a bet with you. Uh, if you go back and, and try that out right now, uh, or let's let's say better still after June 1st, you're going to find the number of people who can hear that uh, signal on that wavelength will have mm. increased by a factor of 10x versus mm. prior to March 1st. Uh, that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. That's also something that I feel like part of the the switch that has flipped in me is is this idea that maybe they won't think I'm crazy now. Well, frankly, I don't give a fuck, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, the uh, but yeah, you know, you're uh, you know, I've been a what I call a semi prepper for the last 30 years, mm -hmm. right? And it probably at some level of social discredit, people say, Who is that asshole? Why the hell, you know, is he always talking about guns and storing food? Why did he buy a farm up in the mountains? All that shit. Well, guess what? I got all that back with interest over the last two months, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, so uh, to be a little bit about a bit of a forward thinker, realizing that the status quo was not nearly as stable as that shiny veneer uh, uh, would have it. Now, I think that is why the, the number of those with ears to hear has grown by at least a factor of 10. Mm. Because the shiny veneer has been punctured, there's been a glitch in the matrix. Uh, people, still not many, it's still less than 2%, I'd say. Uh, but, you know, uh, a, an appreciable number, you know, 2% of Americans is more than 6 million Americans, mm -hmm. uh, may now have seen enough glitches in the matrix and seen, have been thrown off the, uh, the uh, shimmery uh, hammock and landed on their ass uh, to realize the status quo is not this thing that was brought down from uh, Mount Sinai by Moses. This is something that, you know, is relatively recent, uh, you know, it's under our control to make of it what we want. And as you say, uh, has been on this brainless automatic pilot that'll drive mm -hmm. us right over the cliff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you're saying about the likely increase in additional ears to hear is exciting for me, but it's also scary for me because I feel like the amount of people that start listening when there's no food at the grocery store is really big. And that seems like a silver lining of something that is deeply tragic and, and just riddled with so much suffering on so many different levels. And it's like, you know, people like you, you know, you might have been for 30 years, you might have kind of seen the seen through the veil protects the entire system or that shadows the entire system and have made some moves in your life that, that make principles in your mind that make moves in your life that are, Hey, I should probably be a little bit more connected to my food system when shit really hits the fan. If there's no tomatoes at the grocery store, that becomes an existential problem on my doorstep. But I don't know, I guess I'm just like, I'm stuck between the excitement of the audience growing or the percentage of the population that wants to participate in creating the new world and the likely deep, dark tragedy that precedes their awakening. Yep. It's uh, the problem. Uh, you know, fortunately, uh, you know, my view on that is, uh, uh, 
the only thing we can do is play the cards that we were dealt. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't build this mess. I mean, I had a little teeny bit around the edges to building this mess, but uh, uh, but I retired a long time ago and repented for my sins, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so those of us who are trying to, uh, you know, envision and bring into being what comes next, uh, all we can do is play the cards we're, be- we're dealt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is unfortunate for a lot of people that the shiny hammock is probably not going to last that long, mm-hmm. but it's fucking reality. Right. Mm-hmm. And to, uh, you know, not accept that as real and just deal dude, uh, is, is a gigantic mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's this, uh, you know, sort of radical realism, uh, which is, to my mind is an important part of serious sense-making. Um, yep. and, and, you know, I do know a lot of people talk about, you know, the trauma and, you know, people who are, you know, paralyzed by the, the coming ecocide, et cetera. You know, my answer, all that is fuck that shit, get off your ass, get to work. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whining about it and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what they do, wring their handkerchiefs, whatever. That's not going to solve the problem. Uh, so, you know, we got to be radical realists and pragmatists and, uh, and, and think hard because we don't really know all the answers. We have some ideas, but they're, they're untested. There's a of huge course. amount of work to do to put our ideas to work and see if they're sound and if they are for them to ramp up. And so there is the, the, the good news is that I think just in the last year or so, there's been enough work. Uh, in the Gain B movement, in metamodernism, mm-hmm. in regenerative ecology, and some of these other uh, movements that are all what I'd call alignment beyond agreement. You know, we're all heading mm. generally in the same place with different theories how to get there, maybe even different theories about what there looks like, but generally in the same direction. There are now places for many, many people to put their shoulder and help move the boxcar. And so I think uh, that's a big difference than a year ago when if you were uh, when you woke up in the morning and go, oh, this sucks. This is not only does it suck, but this will suck for the next 60 years. Mm-hmm. There was really very little for you to do. But uh, now there's places for you to go and people for you to network with and projects for you to engage with. Mm-hmm. You know, the a couple things come up for me there. One is what you're talking about in the beginning is basically what Jordan Hall refers to as coming into right relationship with reality. This, Jim, this is where I come from. I'm a professional action sports athlete. If you think you can do it and you are in some kind of fairy tale in your mind, you'll die. And my own existence and health right now is a testament to my own longing to be in right relationship with reality. Um, and so fortunately. Well, let me, let me jump in here if you don't yeah. mind. Uh, but uh, from a complex systems perspective, which is, you know, my sort of philosophical grounding, mm-hmm. uh, physics is simple. Uh, social systems are complex, right? Uh, you know, gravity always works the same way, right? Friction always works the same way. Uh, you know, the way your muscles and your bones form levers uh-huh. and, and what they can physically do, they're pretty predictable. Uh, and so, you know, getting straight with yourself about physical reality is one thing. And yes. impressive 
at the level you've been able to do it, uh, but becoming in, uh, you know, straight with reality in a complex social system that's uh-huh. not only social but strategic, yeah. where every agent is not only trying to optimize its own environment, uh, but also is acting strategically, realizing that all the other agents are too, mm-hmm. is a, you know, conceptually vastly bigger problem, much, mm-hmm. much harder. Mm-hmm. And it's the com- my complexity stacking on top of yours. Yeah, and then then the strategic inter uh, inter uh, relationship, and because you know that I know that you know that I know that you know uh, that I know, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then you multiply that by uh, the interconnections of seven billion people mediated by absolutely a, a firestorm like Facebook and Twitter. What the fuck you got? Right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and you know it. It's so funny that you say that. Because you, you say physics is, is, is relatively simple in, in the, uh, you know, the grand scope of complexity of the social interaction that we have on, a, on this planet, right? Yesterday, I helped my best friend. He's an Olympian mountain biker, and we use snowmobiles. And we got this, we got this sled deck that, that goes into the back of the truck that you can drive two snowmobiles up on top of, right? Well, in the summer, he doesn't want this damn thing taking up a bunch of space, so... Uh, as a highliner, I'm like the rigging guy. And so we devised this way to use winches that we drill bolts into the concrete floor so that we can winch this, you know, 500 pound snowmobile plus a 500 pound sled deck up and out of the truck and cinch it all the way up to the ceiling so it's out of the way. And as we start the thing, we get it pretty much like mocked up and rigged. And Adam says to me, I can't see any, way, any reason why this won't work. <laughs> I thought, well, exactly. Of course, you can't see any reason. We haven't figured. We haven't even run into the first time that it doesn't work. And as we got this thing four feet out of the back of the truck, we find that the balance that we so precariously work towards, which was the main issue. You know, we have four hanging points and three pulleys on each side of this thing. And even though this seems like such an elementary game of physics it actually is so much more complex than we gave it credit for. And as we work through this relatively simple system, we just find layer after layer after layer of complexity from balance point to the friction of the pulleys to the momentum when the friction actually starts moving, then the momentum of the hanging weight. It just, I think that, People having an introduction to complex systems theory, to integral theory, is absolutely critical right now because the way things appear, the way that we perceive them, it seems like graspable. It seems like we can understand it. But the further you go, just like any Mandelbrot, the further you go, the more it reveals its complexity, the more it reveals its complexity. And we are in an age where we are addicted to certainty. Yep, and that's, uh, that's false certainty. You know, if there's one thing Absolutely. we learn from complex science uh, is that, uh, you know, particularly in many moving parts, uh, complex systems with lots of strategic agents, the ability to call your shot very far out is non-existent. <laughs> and so one should always be highly skeptical of people who lay down, here's the master plan, you know, mm-hmm. Karl Marx or, you know, mm-hmm. Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong or something uh, and say, this is how it's all going to work out, right? And I would even say, I would even go from Mao, Hitler, all those to even smaller entities, like all the way down to the authority of a parent. 
like even the way that we parent our children in a society is like, like it's so authoritarian. There's no inquiry handed down or there wasn't in my upbringing and my peers even less. Yeah, I actually did a podcast interview last week with Zach Stein. Yeah, he's my, uh, I'm, I'm deep in his book right now and I interviewed him for my podcast. He's my fucking hero right now. I cannot yeah, be of him. Yeah, he, in fact, I, we, uh, we both agreed before we started that there was so much we wanted to cover that we agreed to do two podcasts. Okay, so great. The first one will be out around the 1st of June, the second one out probably two or three weeks afterwards. But yeah, he makes that point in spades mm. is that uh, what we call education, and peripherally at least he talks about parenting as well, uh, is just so inappropriate for the modern age, right? Mm. Uh, you, know, it, you know, basically what we, uh, what we think of as our pedagogical culture is from mm. 1920 or thereabouts, yeah. where the idea was at the, at the best, the best you could do was to get a job working in a factory, turning good old bolt number 47 for <laughs> 35 years, get a gold watch, and then uh, retire to your little cottage on a lake someplace, right? Uh, and that's not the world we live in at all. And, uh, and again, part of that, you know, part of what a real education needs to consist of is one, the deep tools, you know, that, because uh, you're going to have to reinvent yourself six times probably mm -hmm. in your life. You're not going to Tighten good old bolt number 47 for 35 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the, the basic tools that are always going to be appropriate, like logic and, uh, you know, understanding the uh, cognitive fallacies that we're all subject to, by the way. And the, you know, anyone who thinks they're not subject to cognitive fallacies, <laughs> look at your guess again, person, because mm -hmm. you're subject to them also. So these are the kinds of, of deep. Uh, process tools that we really need to make sure our kids, uh, uh, you know, uh, master from a young age and realism. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of so-called progressives or, or world change people I find are, are kind of living in, an, in a world of unreality. You know, they, uh, you know, Somehow they think the you know the the spirit divas were going to come and save them or some fucking bullshit, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, or that or the other direction, if they just throw up their hands and go into uh, postmodernism and believe, oh, there's no difference between astrology and astronomy, or between uh, uh, you know Johns Hopkins and a witch doctor, and they go, ah, people, yeah. sorry, we're not going to build the better world that way. Yeah, and that you know what you're saying brings me back to something that I wrote down as you talked was like. Uh, you know, the idea of social justice warriors that uh, you were talking, you said something about how they're just crying and whining and you say, get off your ass and take some kind of action. And I have in my intellectual evolution come to somewhat resent that uh, position. And I found that particularly in my experience with climate change, the people who advocate for climate change, climate change activists, don't actually make any kinds of changes in their own lives, nor do they have any kind of intuition of any implications other than political. Most of the climate change that has been mainstream is merely a pseudo-socialist or political endgame and this, you know, this, this metagame that we're playing. 
this metagame, this, this complex systems theory, this integral look, how omni-considerate can we be of all these different things tends to, or it seems in me to pretty wholly dismiss the myopic uh, claims that both social justice and um, climate activists have brought up. But then as I come back and read Stein's book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, chapter four is 13 Social Miracles. And he just lays out how all of these different pieces that these separate entities kind of claim as the problem are no doubt a problem, but are not the problem. And so, I don't know, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on what is the, what's the, like there's such a disjointed, there's such a disjointed nature to all these different people claiming that there is the problem. That's a, a, a huge point. And then Zach and I were 100% on the same page there. Uh, and that's why we started this Game B movement uh, mm -hmm. several years ago. If those people are interested, check it out at the Game B. It's all one word on Facebook group or on Twitter. You can find hashtag Game B. You can find thousands of people interested in this topic. Uh, because what we really need to do is completely escape from this current basin of attraction that we're in, which has many, many dimensions, right? Uh, there's binding energy around economics, around uh, family, around sexuality, around uh, religion, and it's pseudo-religious uh, manifestations and uh, how we how we deal with the ecosystem, mm -hmm. uh, the monetary signaling, uh, and on and on and on. There's dozens of dimensions. And what comes next does not come from changing one of those dimensions. It's rather evolving towards a completely new basin, which is held together by a whole different set of, of uh, attractors. And I've laid a lot of this out in an essay I wrote called In Search of the Fifth Attractor, mm -hmm. uh, where I described you know, briefly the current attractor, Game A, and then I lay out some attractors that are not so good that already exist out there, like uh, neo-fascism, the Chinese, uh, you know, neo-feudalism, the hardcore libertarians, uh, you know, the Cook brothers, uh, maybe Peter Thiel on a bad day, uh, neo-dark ages. Uh, if some of these religious fundamentalists, which seem to be on the rise in various parts of the country, were to have their way with what comes next, and then good old-fashioned chaos, right? Suppose it all breaks down. Uh, that's a very uh, dire situation for almost everybody. And if you look at history, what happens is first you get chaos, then you get criminal gangs, then you get warlords, and then you get a king, right? Uh, so uh, there's those so when you say attractor, just to help people understand what attractor is, it's like a possible path that is trying to suck the future towards. Yes, yeah, exactly. And let me give you a very little homey idea. Let's imagine game A is a metal bowl, like the kind of thing we put our salad in. Uh, the p possible p configurations of game A are all the surfaces on the in the salad bowl. You put a marble in the bowl, and, you and the real world jiggles around a little bit, and the marble moves around, but, but it stays in the bowl, right? Uh, with a big enough shock, the marble flies out of the bowl, but mm -hmm. guess what? There's a bunch of bowls around that bowl. And the marble has to land in one of them. Mm. And so the four bad attractors I talked about are four internally consistent ideas uh, that, have also, that have different attractors than 
uh, game A, the current status quo, uh, and sort of make sense on their own terms. But I think most of us would agree that's not where we want to go. Yeah. So the idea is to build the fifth attractor or the nth attractor. So those uh, are the four biggest bowls that surround our bowl that are likeliest to catch the marble when it falls out. Egg, when it flies out. <laughs> when it flies going to be a shock, you know, boom, you know, know. <laughs> I love then I'll go, and I'll land one of these bowls. And, I love uh, this. And Jordan Hall talks about it as like, instead of it's a marble, it's like your uh, civilization is holding a bowl full of water and we are like trying to carefully carry it. And as the jiggles of unpredictability and, and reality knock the bowl, water sloshes out to one side and then it, the wave goes back to the other side and Yep. Okay. Another good announcement because there actually are two two ways in which the marble can move somewhere else. One is the big shock and it goes flying out. Mm-hmm. Uh, my current guess is this COVID nineteen isn't quite big enough of a shock uh, to actually fly the marble out. Though it will be moving the marble pretty high up on the wall, and God knows what configuration space we'll be searching as the ball moves around very mm-hmm. rapidly here over the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other way is you can slowly hill climb out of the bowl over the ridge and down to the other side. And so that's uh, what I call the long road to game B. And I uh, recently wrote an essay called a journey to game B, which lays out a 80 year road to game B, you know, mm-hmm. in a hill climbing approach. Mm-hmm. And I think those, both of those alternatives are quite possible and we have to be ready for either one, either that game A somehow remains stable for the next 75, 80 years, 60 to 80 years, and we just keep doing more and more and more game B and eventually we get to the other side and the tipping point occurs and we gent, fairly gently go into the other basin or shock or several, you mm-hmm. know, the most common one, if you study disasters, uh, you'll find that like a power, nuclear power plant failure, a massive grid failure, electrical grid failure, typically it's not a single point of failure. It's mm-hmm. two or three things happen in, sh- in close synchronization. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. big literature on failure modes. And so let's say we have COVID-19 and some massive cyber attack uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know what, Iran and Israel. Yeah, no, it's bump bigger. Israel and Iran get at it with nuclear weapons and destroy all the oil fields of the middle of Middle East. <laughs> yeah. You know, all three of them happen in, in eighteen months, right? What the fuck, right? Yeah, uh, that might well be enough to uh, bounce us out of the current uh, salad bowl and into another one. So it could go either way, and I think we have to be prepared for both. Uh, it's actually much better for humanity if we take the long, slow road mm-hmm. to game B, but. And, you know, we call that the normative road that we should set out on. Mm-hmm. But we need to absolutely be aware that uh, the shocks could come at any time and we need to accelerate the program and be ready to take the short road uh, uh, should the shocks force us into that. Uh, or, yeah, just, or, or just the decay. I mean, keep in mind, the signals about the current state of the status quo, just from an internal perspective, are not good. We're reaching levels of inequality. Uh, and polarization, which historically have been predecessors to the clanking of the guillotine, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it could just be an endogenous failure mode where people uh, lose any sense of trust or uh, alignment with game A, and it just collapses, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of the way the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, nobody was pushing on it all that hard, and it just, the people looked around and said, you know, this fucking sucks. You know, I'm not willing to go one one inch further to Mm -hmm. to hold this beast up, and it just collapsed, which is amazing that uh, when you go back and look at the- That is amazing. What the political science writers and the historians were writing, um, 
even two or three years before, they were all assuming Marxist-Leninism was here for the next 200 years at least. We just have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But suddenly it just collapsed because people said, this sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, same could happen to, to game A. Yeah. And what we're talking about, we're, we're alluding to the difference between collapse or transition, you know, and um, the analogy of the aircraft of civilization has an engine out and we're running on fumes on the other engine and the question of whether we have a crash landing, a water landing, uh, uh, you know, or a soft transition to the next iteration is still up for grabs. That's still yet to be seen. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. Because of course, the other side of it, someone says, well, trying to do the reform by hill climbing is like trying to change the engine on an airplane while it's flying. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't yeah. believe that's actually true. I believe we can do it incrementally. And I lay out a fair amount of that in the journey to game B, uh, how we can start in a bottom-up way and only gradually worry about the higher levels uh, once we've built you know, millions of people who are living a game B way. I love that. And I think that's a perfect segue. There was something that you mentioned in that Future Thinkers podcast, which was the seemingly the divide in the original, uh, what was it, the uh, emancipators political movement that you guys started. Um, And that was this divide of whether or not change in society comes from the bottom up or the top down, essentially, whether it is individual people changing the way that they think and their motivational structures, communication structures, all of these myriad things that make up the principles that guide their behavior or whether it's institutions. And um, this is a really interesting topic. I think that it's a, you know, it's a both and situation. Just yeah, that's the end. That's the key. And at the t- I don't know why we didn't see this here. This was a bunch of smart people that uh, did the, <laughs> the original emancipation party. And that and then, uh, morphed it into game B, you know, as all the people you've heard of, you know, Jordan and I yeah, and course. Brett Weinstein and a bunch mm-hmm. of others, uh, like 25, 30, actually, eventually 60 people, really smart people. Somehow we got into a pissing match and it all fell apart uh, around <laughs> around two poles. Uh, one was, you know, and not just the, the more nuanced version you gave, but kind of personal change of the introspection sort, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, if you meditate long enough, you will see the light and the world will change uh, versus the institutions uh, first people, which is, uh, you know, you build proper monetary systems and, you know, a a better form of democracy and, uh, uh, you know, an economy that doesn't optimize around short term money on money return. And that'll take care of the problem. Well, guess what? We were both wrong. Uh, and I've thought about this for years, and so as many of the other people. I think we've all come to approximately the same decision, conclusion, which is to talk about either separately is not realistic. Uh, let's talk about, partial. Yeah, it's, uh, it, and actually it's even deeper than that. The, the two have to co-evolve, particularly when you look at something I've become more and more a big deal about. It's as we look at any collection of humans, they're always on a continuum on any variable you want from height, uh, to intelligence, to uh, body mass, to whatever you want, how long they can hold their breath even. Uh, And so there's always going to be a few vanguard people who can change themselves uh, via their own brute force methods or by using tools like uh, meditation or psychedelics or something. But the vast preponderance of humans uh, respond to the local social signals. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you know, 98% of people are unwilling to be outcasts, right? Uh, 98% of people follow their nose through life and just respond to the social signals they receive. Uh, on the sec on the other side, uh, institutions can only work with the people that they have, right? If people's motivation is status through possessions, uh, then the institutions that will arise from that uh, though, uh, of course, obviously they were also created by that. So they're in this co-evolutionary context. Uh, they must take into consideration that the people who are, are alive today are strongly motivated by status through possessions. And so you get, you know, the emergent phenomena of uh, marketing, uh, all kinds of glitzy shit that nobody needs, right? Uh, and and the two co-evolve together. And uh, because we have allowed the... Uh, uh, kind of hyper-capitalist financial late-stage game A to uh, crush everything in its path, but but without guiding it. There was no top-down conspiracy mm -hmm. to create game A. It emerged from the realities of game A. We've created this uh, society of uh, status through possessions and uh, people and institutions which send them uh, signals which they respond to in a way that produces uh, some level of social coherence. And so if we suddenly went to a full game B tomorrow for the whole society, 98% uh, of people would revolt. They'd go, what the fuck is this, right? I, need, I want a Rolex and a Lexus, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, uh, you know, I need a $500 cashmere sweater, you know? Uh, well, you know, this game B thing isn't going to provide that. That's fucked, right? Uh, so we, we come around to conclude, and this is why we got to bottoms up, is that Small percentage of people can make the change on their own. I'm not, no one knows why. You know, genes, how they were raised, you know, something traumatic that happened to them in their life. And what they need to do is build their own institutions hmm. uh, that provide the signals that support the kind of people they are, right? And that's what we call a proto-B, uh, which is an early group of Game B people getting together, living together in a way that's Game B-ish, but still participating in Game A because Game A is 99.99% of the world. And gradually over time, as there's more game proto-Bs, they don't have to be the same. That's the other thing we realized. Uh, I call it coherent pluralism. Uh, there's a core coherence about what we're all about, but how we choose to do it can, could matter quite, can, it could differ quite considerably, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some group might believe in homeschooling or another believes in community schooling. Other might even believe in uh, uh, building charter schools that can serve the community they're embedded in. So, uh, you know, in those all three could be valid uh, game B ways to pursue. Then over time, you start getting a bigger economy with the proto-Bs trade with each other, perhaps have their own currency uh, and start to more and more have the, the capability to withdraw from the game A matrix. And oh, by the way, even compete with game A and take resources from it. Uh, and then over a long period of time, uh, these things uh, boot up and operate at higher and higher levels of aggregation until they're, you know, a significant portion of the population in some country. And then at that point, the country essentially just falls into game B. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the long road. That's the 60-year or 80-year road mm -hmm. to game B. And it's uh, designed around the fact that uh, that is the one way that you can solve this problem of institutions or personal change first by saying, honestly, the answer is both. And we'll find a relatively small number of people who are able to change on their own and let them create institutions that reinforce how they live, which is then going to be attractive to other people who come in and have to change themselves as they do so. Okay. I Does that make sense? That. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm, I'm so on board with that. That's key. It's, that's the the answer. Uh, I'm convinced. Uh, and and that not 
having realized that is what doomed game B 1.0. Yeah. And game, and also, by the way, uh, dooms many utopian uh, movements. You know, one thing Mm -hmm. Game game B has always said is we will not be utopian, right? Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, we will. We will be empiricists. We'll try stuff and see what works. Uh, we will also won't be top down because, uh, especially once we had this synthesis, we knew it can't possibly work. And so, through these deep principles, is how we've come to the point where we, where we are. Okay, so there's two things here. Two things. One, I want to hear from you what you think our relationship to game A should be as we transition towards game B. Mm-hmm. And what's the second one? I don't know. All right, well, let's, t- let's talk about the first I one. I lost it. That's all right. <laughs> uh, the, uh, this is a really good question. In fact, the original, I mean, literally the day that Jordan Hall came up with the idea for game B in January 2013, uh, he realized and we realized uh, that Game B for the longest time will be a little part of game A. And if, again, if we mm. want to be realistic about it, we have to build that in from the beginning. Further, today, at that point, and still today, game A has all the resources, right? Mm. Uh, you know, they're the ones that make solar energy uh, chips. And you know, that's a fairly non-trivial technology. It'd be quite a while before the game B community is big enough to have its own uh, uh, silicon processing facilities that are kind of like, chip building mm-hmm. uh, things. And so we uh, we all jointly came up with the team, a term that game B must be relentless about parasitizing game A. Mm. Uh, and so game, game B uh, has to be good at being game B, but it also has to consider the fact that it's tiny and weak anytime soon and it's going to have to get resources from game a Mm -hmm. and the easiest and best and least time consuming way to do that is to get better at playing certain game a games and game Mm -hmm. a is itself Mm -hmm. uh and we talked in those days about maybe a hedge fund right maybe we we build the game b hedge fund Uh, i think at this point uh the hedge fund industry is so utterly saturated nobody's making any money in hedge funds anymore except rapacious sociopaths so that's probably a bad one but uh you know uh, another simpler example is imagine uh a chain of game b auto repair uh businesses uh you know most people have not good experiences dealing with the auto repair industry they lie they cheat they steal they falsify the hours they work they give you cheap knockoff parts made in pakistan and claim that they were the original factory specs etc uh and and also I can tell you from the inside, I was in the car business at one point. Uh, the staff isn't well treated by the uh, management. You know, mm-hmm. there's tension between the mechanics and the service writers and the owners and the parts department's terrible. Uh, imagine a game B auto repair business, uh, a you know, local franchise, you want to call it that, that's uh, employee owned, operated as a co-op. They work together as a team to solve all aspects of the customer's uh, automotive problems. They relentlessly focused on the customer being happy and being treated with honesty and good faith. Uh, I suspect that if you could get that to fly, you would uh, dominate the auto repair business relatively quickly. And so we would actually be parasitizing the sickness in game A in auto repair uh, by building a righteous game B alternative. This is the idea that Daniel and Jordan talk about that 
if game B could actually be embodied and played, it would fucking smoke game A every time. Well, I do think you have to be careful about that. Uh, but I do believe, and, and I'm a strong proponent of that. Uh, in fact, one of the, the first proponents of that. And, but I don't think it's true every time and in every field. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think you have to pick your shots. Uh, and you have to be very, very discerning on where game B, uh, or game B um, actually can outcompete. I, I don't think, for instance, that uh, game B is going to outproduce, out, out compete game a uh you know producing uh, traditional factory scale fertilizer for instance mm. uh, or making nails or something right uh things where scale and rigidity uh and willingness to uh despoil the environment are part of the package so we have to find things that are compatible with a game a a game b way of being but yet produce a better outcome in game A terms. And uh, I kind of like the auto repair one. The other one I like to throw out because it's at first seemed so crazy uh, is an advertising agency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you go, wait a minute, we could be more at game A than an advertising agency, right? Jesus Christ. Uh, but the truth is most advertising problems are fairly straightforward and uh, relatively honorable. Uh, not all of them, but many of them are. And, uh, the working conditions in a game A ad agency utterly suck. Terrible sweatshop, uh, complete hierarchy of the partners, mm -hmm. and then the managers who beat on the young uh, uh, people who are in there, most of them for two or three years, get burned out working 100 mm -hmm. hours a week. All the profit goes to the partners. It's really a totally fucked up ecosystem. Uh, and oh, by the way, as a, as a client, you have to have lunch with these sociopathic, dripping, sleazy partners, which in mm -hmm. itself is a nightmare, right? And this uh, is, you could see this in legal in law firms and in other companies that have a similar structure, right? But it's probably most hypertrophic in ad agencies. Okay. Uh, and it's also an area where the, uh, the kind of early adopters, the game B creatives, we, you know, we have known uh, for mm -hmm. a long time that the game B idea is uh, way overrepresented amongst creatives. You know, it makes sense. They're creative. They can envision a world is not game A. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're going to have, we'll be, have overstocked with smart, ethical, high coherence, high sovereignty creatives. If you put those together and have them thinking about advertising problems, uh, and again, employee owned, uh, you know, no, no real hierarchy, self-organizing management, uh, sort of management through operating system rather than management through people mm -hmm. in boxes. Uh, I could see that. I could smell that that would out the fuck compete because you'd get yeah. the best talent. Yeah. And advertising at the end of the day is a talent-driven business. And I think we could smoke their ass, right? Yeah. Uh, and an I, I, I totally see that. And I guess my question is, I feel like what you answered is like, among the game B people, it's almost like that's a covert way of how we relate parasitically to game A. Like, okay, we're going to like kind of hack the system or we're going to play the game that we've been dealt, but we're going to play it better. How should we be talking about it? Because I feel like there, you know, to go back to our little social justice shtick was like all of these different groups claiming that their problem is the problem and that the system that has created that problem is evil and patriarchal or whatever the adjectives that they put on it are what is our relationship to the world that brought us to where we are are we 
resentful? Are we bitter? Are we grateful? Are we reverent of the, of game a and what it did for us? Should be all the above. And I, I, I sometimes get in trouble with uh, the postmodernists about this. Mm -hmm. Like I like to get in trouble with the postmodernists, but (laughs) the, uh, it don't bother me any, uh, fuck you postmodernists. Uh, but, uh, one of the things I like to point out is, uh, modernism was a miracle. You know, when modernism mm-hmm. started, let's call it, for lack of a better date, 1694, uh, 95% of humanity were uh, living in drudgery uh, at the bare edge of uh, starvation more often than not, uh, backbreaking manual labor with no assistance from machinery and often not even assistance from animals in the poorer parts of the world. Uh, 50% of kids died by the time they were five. Life expectancy was 32 maybe. Uh, some places less than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 400 years, a snap of a finger in anything like, actually less than that, 300 years, in the snap of a finger, uh, we have gone for to the point where uh, even in relative, in most of the world, I think the global life expectancy is like 77 years. A mm-hmm. uh, number of kids that die before five, even in poor countries, is massively down. Uh, one of the most we've ended slavery. Slavery's existed for for, for 10,000 years. We've uh, eliminated slavery. Uh, the the emancip the full emancipation of women has finally begun late in the day, about 1975. Uh, but in a major way. In fact, I often say when the Historians look back at the 20th century. It won't be World War II. It won't be nuclear weapons. It won't be the internet. It won't be landing on the moon. It'll be the emancipation of women that will be the biggest single news story for the uh, 20th century. All those things were uh, created by modernism in a little over 300 years. And so we should be grateful for all that. We should also be resentful for the fact that there were no people keeping it from driving over the edge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably reached its end of useful life around 1970. And yet it just kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. And, you know, the founding fathers, I can't, uh, I can't uh, fault them, you know, keep in mind, the U.S. Constitution was written before a single bit of coal had been mined in North America. Mm. The number of steam engines in North America in 1776, zero. Wow. Uh, This was a uh, animals and human labor and a little bit of water power world in mm-hmm. 1776, even in 1789 when the Constitution went into, into effect. So they were building a very reasonable operating system. Uh, and of course, we're some very smart people, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, uh, James Madison, uh, who could see the future and were in contact with uh, the cutting edge in Europe, and they saw the U.S. would become an industrial power. But at that point, we had no ind- industry at all. And so uh, we built a context that was actually turned out to be very good uh, for industrialization and early modern modernity. But unfortunately, uh, because it uh, enshrined essentially uh, free uh, laissez-faire capitalism without any real restraints and whatever restraints have been put in have been mostly put in extra constitutionally in the especially the big uh, quasi-revolution of 1933 by FDR uh, there's no pulling back on the reins of the money on money return engine that just wants to drive us over a cliff because the signals the social signals of the institutions just say more 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 growth 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 and uh, so for that reason I go Damn, 
wish they had uh, somebody along the line had said, this ain't right. And certainly should have been started to become visible by the 60s or 70s. And there were some voices in the 60s that said, this is crazy. We got to pull back. Uh, but the power of the machine was too powerful. And now we are where we are, where uh, we're, you know, only a couple generations away from driving it right over the cliff. And that's if we're lucky. Could be mm -hmm. sooner than that. Yeah, could be a lot sooner than that. But don't forget all the good it did, right? I mean, yeah. all the things I just listed, it was a miracle in mm -hmm. 300 plus years to have gone from a world that wasn't much different than the fall of Rome. Uh, and in fact, one could argue that things like public health are actually better in Imperial Rome than they were in Imperial London in 1800. Isn't that mm -hmm. amazing thought to, to a world where we have not a bad uh, way of life, but we just can't keep on going this way or it'll end. Yeah. Self-terminating. Yeah. It is. And it just makes me think of the inner motivations, the expectations that we've come to have with even just like what our food looks like at the grocery store. I had a, I've had a number of conversations on the podcast with Shane Ward, this Australian permaculturalist and kind of just came to the realization that our supermarket produce is almost pornographic in its color and size and it's like we just have come to expect nothing but the Rolexes and the Lexuses and and it's only the rare creatives who are able to look and smell and taste a world that doesn't actually thrive on that kind of materialist status. Yep. And I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, you know I, all, I do believe that uh, local food is, one of the, is going to be one of the pathways up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's a growing number of people and where we are uh, in the uh, Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and some of the valleys just to the west. Uh, there's a growing number of young, well-educated people, uh, yeah, from 22 to 35, who are dedicating their life to building uh, real high quality local agriculture and they're mm -hmm. selling only to the people in their own area. In fact, uh, my wife just found a new one that just started up in our area and Saturday we're driving down to their distribution point. It's kind of a, a combined CSA from multiple farms. Uh, it's really cool. And, and, Great. You know, and I think this disruption in the supply chain from COVID is going to give those people an even bigger chance. But this is one of the ways, you know, I would expect uh, some of the game B proto bees will specialize in local agriculture. Absolutely. And, and there, and as you say, most people aren't buying it yet. Uh, most people rather go to Walmart and get a, you know, a real shiny apple, right? Uh, <laughs> when in reality, any of those of us who've actually lived out in the country, I live in a farm a long way from anywhere. Uh, the shiny apple ain't the good apple. The no. shiny apple is the one that's got three or four different colors on it. Maybe even have a wormhole on it. That's the yeah. good apple. Yeah. And you know, that's so funny. I, something in me with this whole thing has just like spurred. I, I have this haunting suspicion of food scarcity by late summer here where I live. I've built 18 garden boxes this year and have been trying to get people to change their lawns into small gardens or little nano farms. And, you know, that kind of goes back to what we were, we were talking about of the excitement of game B welling and the fear of it 
coming on so fast out of suffering. Um, but I'm curious, do you, do you consider, are you a proto beer? Not yet. Uh, you know, I would hope to help, uh, a proto B, a local proto B form by no later than the end of 2021, as I laid out <laughs> in the journey to game B, uh, whether I put myself will go that route, I don't know. And I've, I've confessed this before, mm. you know, I'm old and sort of set my ways, God damn it. <laughs> and, and, uh, 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 maybe I'll make, uh, maybe I've become a, a, a real game B person or maybe I'm a game B coach. I don't know. And, You're the John uh, Madden of game B. You are yeah. the John Madden of game B. You watch I, I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. And maybe, uh, maybe my uh, next video game will be game B 2021 with Jim Rudd motherfuckers. <laughs> oh man i love it jim i love it and i love you thank you so much for your time this has been so fun to connect we should definitely do this shit again yeah it's been great chatting with you the uh hope next time to get a little bit into uh talking smack about your uh sports days too yeah i would love to i, I can talk about that till i'm blue in the face buddy yeah, yeah this was great enjoyed it uh, you were well prepared which i always like in a podcaster <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I heard you say on the the other thing that you on one of your podcasts that you typically do 10 hours of of preparation on a podcast. And I got to tell you, I did about 90 minutes for this one and figured we would just jam. Yeah, and we did. Uh, <laughs> but, and I do those too. Uh, in fact, I now have some sub brands on the podcast of ones that are more 90 minutes of prep and then let's jam and they're uh -huh. fun. But my deep ones, like with Zach, you know, I spent yeah. oh, easily 10 hours getting ready for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really had to, you know, I had to go into a lot of detail to understand his work in, in, at lots of different levels. So there's different well, kinds of podcasts. And I, I enjoy totally. all of them, actually. So, I can't wait to hear your talk with Zach Stein. The man, I cannot sing that guy's praises enough. And I, I just, I'm trying my best to just blast out Zach Stein as loud as I can. But he's a, he is an important player. There's no doubt about that. He is. And, we he can is. All, and, that, and as we talked about at the very beginning, that's part of your and my job is to upregulate good yes. signal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love your signal, man. Keep it going. Take care. Bye-bye. See ya. All right, you guys. I hope you love that. You can check out Jim's show at The Jim Rutt Show, and you can find his articles on Medium. He's a great writer and speaker, as you now know. So I encourage you to follow him and read the things that he writes. And uh, he'll definitely be back on the show sooner than later. So thanks, Jim, for coming on. If you guys like this as i i'm sure you did if you've made it this far consider donating to support this podcast that's paypal.me slash airy in the air consider it a gift you're not paying for this service you're encouraging me you are adding fuel to the fire so i really appreciate all the people who have donated and could use some more of that so keep it coming you guys stay healthy stay sane stay safe We'll see you on the next episode. We got lots of great stuff coming. It's backlog and it's coming, baby. Here we go. Bye.